Welcome to the Skies Were Under podcast, hosted by me, Rachel Wright. This podcast is created by and for parents of people with disabilities and the many practitioners who support us. It's just for all of us who are trying to get from one end of the week to the other whilst bridging the gap between the life we expected and the one we're actually living. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm founder and director of Born at the Right Time. I'm a qualified nurse, the parent of three, and I've got an eldest son who loves swimming, pointless, and has complex disabilities. I wrote the memoir, The Skies I'm Under, and I'm thrilled you've joined us for another episode of The Skies We're Under podcast, which shares the stories of fellow parents, so we can all feel a little less alone and a little more understood. Today, I'm chatting to Dr. Joanna Griffin. Jo is a guru in parent care and well-being. What she doesn't know is possibly not even worth knowing. She is my go-to for applying research to real life. She's an academic, she's a geek, she's a counselling psychologist, but importantly, she's also a parent carer and she lives in the real world. If you haven't got time to read her books and articles, well, sit down, grab a cup of tea and listen for the next hour of this nourishing and super helpful conversation. Hello and welcome to the Skies Under podcast. I'm very excited that today we have, I want to say friend, but we, I don't know, have we've not met in person yet, have we? But we have Joanna Griffin here and I can give you all the sh- this blurge about her. She's a counselling psychologist, she's a parent care and researcher based at the University of Warwick. She's interested in parent care and well-being. She's written the book Day by Day and runs the website affinityhub.uk as well as being involved in lots of different projects at the University of Warwick. She has got a wellbeing conference coming up, which hopefully we'll cover lots more about on the 10th of May. Um, importantly, you're all going to miss this, but she has the most beautiful background when you do a virtual conversation with her. It's totally curated with the right images. And she looks, you start looking at Joe and you just feel like a, a sigh calm because it looks so <laughs> elegant. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Hello, what a lovely introduction. I just feel quite blown away. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's, it's so nice when you say about being a friend, but we're a virtual, yeah. a virtual friend. <laughs> Mostly, I, I, I email you and go, can we chat, please? <laughs> I want to talk about something, is what generally happens. And I really appreciate your thoughts. I like your thoughts and following your, your wanderings and your musings, musings. and your desire to find out why and more and I really yeah I really appreciate that curiosity your book day by day is the book I wish I'd written I wish I wish I had that stuff in my head (laughs) because um it's it's got that brilliant balance of this is coming from a perspective of a life that I know for myself but um really established in kind of research and theory and not that it then is like just endless long words but really applicable really like so this is what makes a difference and this is so tell me about yourself tell me sort of lots of parents I've spoken to on the podcast find themselves in the jobs that they're doing now as a combination of things that they were previously interested before they were parents and what they're like you know what roles they were in but then parent carerhood kind of interjected into their life and it kind of sent them off on a slightly different path or changed them or motivated them in different ways how did you arrive here 
Yes, I've been wonder, I've wondered that myself, actually. <laughs> it's a, Because at the University of Warwick, I'm, my job title is assistant professor. And honestly, sometimes I think Ooh. back to 20 years ago, I never would have thought, seen myself in a role with the word professor in it. I never would have thought research would be really where I was going to end up. So it is very interesting what curveballs life throws at you and how you respond to that as well. But I was always interested in mental health okay, and trained as a counselling psychologist a long time ago. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to put numbers to it, but, but a long time ago. So that was always my interest. And then I think because when you train as a counselling psychologist, you have to do quite a bit of work on yourself and therapy. Yeah, and I kind yeah. of would be observing myself as my son was born and that trauma and seeing him grow and seeing the battle with the system, the system that I used to be part of Mm -hmm. because I used to work in the NHS and Mm -hmm. that's a really weird, really weird tension. Yeah. But then I think because I was noticing what I was feeling and then talking to other parents and seeing what they were struggling with, this really started to build up this kind of desire to understand more the pressures that parent carers are under what helps them, and then gradually trying to marry up research and lived experience. I mean, I guess that's a real key Mm. bridge for me that I really value. I really enjoy taking a research paper that feels really dry and actually thinking, come on, you know, in a day-to-day setting, what does this actually mean? What does that actually look like? Yeah. And importantly, what I like about lots of the work that you do is then not just what does that mean to me, but how can this inform me? How can that kind of make a difference to me, either through the practitioners who support us and informing them and changing them, or through me as the parent? How can I use that information to make it useful? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much value in the research, but sometimes it just needs a little bit of a shift or a different angle to really yeah, apply it in your life. And I think what I found really helpful was reading studies that showed that parent carers' mental health was at risk, was at greater risk because of the pressures they're under. And that really helped me think, okay, I've struggled. I am struggling at times. That's not my failure. Yeah. There's a bigger issue here. I found that really, really helpful. Yeah, me too. That kind of... But then also thinking, why haven't I read this before? (laughs) Why is this not out there in, you know day-to-day speak as it were it's like this conspiratory gaslighting of kind of feeling like I must be doing this wrong because this is really hard and everybody else has got these insta things of like you know like I wouldn't have it any other way or I don't know they've got so much to learn and they're so special and wonderful and it's like all those things are true except there's also stuff that I'm really finding hard I'm really like have not got down at all and having it in research it's sad that we need research to validate that but having it in research is really reassuring that you know it's not that I'm I'm doing it badly or I'm doing it wrong it's that this is flipping hard yeah I'm not a failure yeah yeah, yeah I'm not a failure I'm not I'm not not resilient enough there is a big there is an issue out there and there's quite a lot of move in the kind of trauma world to twisting the question from not what's wrong with you but what happened to you 
And I really like that kind of reframing and understanding, and particularly for parent carers, not thinking about a difficult parent, thinking about a traumatized parent. It really shifts how you think about someone. It does. It does. Yeah, I talk about those kind of labels in the training and stuff around that of, you know, the difference between, you know, uh, a sort of a non-engaged parent or an overwhelmed parent, like a sort of kind of challenging parent versus an anxious parent. Like, well, what what's the cause? What's the thing that's making that behavior that you're seeing rather than sort of labeling the the bad behavior, so to speak, but sort of really understanding the context. And that's true also from practitioners. Like they're all, you know, everybody within the system, whether we're the people within services or the families, we're all struggling in different ways and it can bring up the worst in us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There is something about when you are vulnerable if someone kind of hears that and sees that and actually shows some of their vulnerability as well, that can make for a really beautiful connection. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that professionals need to offload all that what's going on for them, but just something about this is this is really tough. I feel really frustrated. I can't do more for you. You know, it's just something vulnerable, but not falling apart, still supportive. But yeah, that emotional engagement. Human human i think yeah 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 and it's exactly and that's the all the there's lots of more research around that isn't there about you know we we, we're banging on about personalized care within the nhs you know and how that's important but that requires a level of emotional engagement and it's not about taking on someone's trauma but it's about engaging with the person's humanity and recognizing that although you may not be able to say, yes, it's the same for me, you can recognize the shared emotions of frustration and fear and anxiety and overwhelm and say, you know, that must be really stressful or that must be really hard. And I can see, you know, I share a level of frustration that I wish I could do more, like you say. So that's that yeah, I find that really helpful thinking about changing our perspective of how we label each other and how we humanize both sides of the story. There's one part that I struggle with um, when I think about being authentic in that story and my story as a parent, and that is telling my story and not necessarily divulging my son's story in a way that he's not able to give me permission to do so or his brothers and obviously you tread that line as well and I think you do it you do it differently to me and I'm just curious as to what was your thinking around as as your work grew how you decided to separate those things or merge those things and have there been any has there been any evolution as to what you've decided in that and has that changed as hit definitely it's such an interesting question and I think there's so much yeah work to be kind of done and written and thought about this because it does need reflection Mm. I think when your child's younger they still feel very much part of you and you're it's so entwined the the difficulties Certainly, that's how it felt for me. But then I think as he became 
older and could communicate more and probably as I became more informed and actually started connecting more with disability groups and neurodiversity and seeing those perspectives, which sometimes there can be a real tension mm. between certain groups and parent carers. And I understand the tension. I kind of understand from, from both points of view, but it really got me thinking, who, yeah, whose story am I telling? And I'm more reluctant now to talk about things as he's, as my son's older. Mm. And I guess I'm probably in less of a traumatized state now as well. <laughs> so at the time when he was younger, I think I needed to talk and share. Um, but then things became uncomfortable. And there is this tension between saying being a parent carer can be difficult. Lots of positives and growth and skills that you learn. And I wouldn't take, you know, I'm not trying to dismiss any of that. So it, it is a, an evolution I think you used is a perfect description and it's still evolving still evolving now working out what that is and maybe part of maybe our some of our divergences to that is that my son has doesn't have that level of communication that your son does and therefore I'm thinking about his siblings more than I'm thinking about him the sort of tightrope that I'm walking and I still have I don't think it's an end point I don't think this is a decision I'm going to make this is something again that will change but it's the challenge of um, he's never going to be able to tell his story. So who is best placed to do that? And I think other disabled people aren't necessarily because they don't know his complexity. Like only the people that are immediately around him know the level of his complexity and the life that he lives. So it would be really sad if none of his story, you know, the people like him didn't have their story told. But how do we do it whilst recognizing all the things that you said about the ableism and our cultural narratives that we are already duped by and already completely kind of brainwashed by essentially but it is an important role for parent carers i think to bridge that and tell the mm. stories and and fight and advocate it's a really important role for us but i i think with all these things i think it's okay to evolve and it's okay with reflective, you know, reflective practice as parent carers. Let's continue to reflect and talk and see. Yeah. Because I used to share photos sometimes of my son when he was younger, and then I didn't want to. And then I did recently, and then I felt really uncomfortable. And I thought, okay, I need to listen to that. That doesn't feel right, so I won't do that again. So, okay. you know, I'm a great believer in tuning into your emotions, seeing what it's te they're telling you, reflecting yeah. on them, yeah. talking to people, and then seeing where you where you sit. And that whole thing of A, it's not bad to change your mind. And B, it's not that your way is what everybody else should be doing or what everybody else like you only have to be responsible for how you tell your story and your own family. You don't you don't have to feel any sense of responsibility to tell anybody else how they should or shouldn't be doing that or whatever, but having that curiosity to have honest conversations with people. Yeah. And, and to notice what you're comfortable with. But I also notice online that when people do share their personal experiences, that's often what connects the most with others. It's really powerful. Absolutely. It is really, really powerful. I think we need people sharing their stories, but they need to be comfortable with what they're sharing and perhaps have had some time to reflect on it. Mm. You know, it's that whole kind of don't just react 
think and respond and the golden pause, pause and stop and think, okay, am I comfortable with this? Well, yes, if that's your decision, then absolutely. And like you say, it creates conversations that otherwise wouldn't be having. And it's another level of breaking down the institutional barriers. Like like if, if so much of our lives are lived online and actually we hide away a whole section of our population because, you know, then aren't we doing the same thing as we were in the 50s and 60s? That's very true, yeah. By, you know, creating our own little asylums of not having those voices. That's really true. And there was this really scary um, research, I think Mencap did, that a massive proportion of the population have never met anyone with a learning disability. Mm. Really, I found that quite shocking when I read that. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There is a important point about being visible visible and heard yeah and represented people represented at born at the right time we're passionate about improving the lives of people with complex disabilities whether it's through supporting their family cpd certified training for practitioners or influencing policymakers and providers to turn rhetoric into reality You can find out more about our work, whether it's book on a parent workshop, attend a live podcast event, or check out our range of practitioner training in communication, collaboration, and personalised care by visiting our website, www.bornattherighttime.com. So, one of the phases, one of the things that I have, we've talked about in the podcast before, so we've talked about self-care, but none of this... uh, I think Sarah in the podcast we talked about care, self-care was like, you know, not some damp yoga pose <laughs> as the sun as the sun rises <laughs> to get your misty scene. One of the things that I um, I'd like to say I said it, but sadly Sarah Clayton said it. But one of the things she said is it was about pruning and not just planting. So not just cutting stuff, not just like doing more stuff like have a massage or have a bath or do these extra things, but actually cut back on things. And one of the aspects that I kind of, since talking to Sarah, that I recognize when I've reflected that I've applied that prune, not just plant, is to friendships. So especially in those early years when they were really good friends and beautiful, well-meaning, deep relationships. And when my son was born and we found ourselves in a different kind of world, it felt like, that those really good friends either struggled to meet us in our story or chose to disconnect. Can you talk to us a little bit about those tricky transitions when you realize people that you thought were going to be really useful and helpful and kind of you really valued and suddenly it's not such what you expect it's really difficult isn't it I know in in my research and surveys I've done this comes up a lot people feeling really really disappointed by people and I think this is the thing with connection and other people and social connections we we need them they're so important but the flip side of that they can also be really heartbreaking and really difficult and social comparison and all of these different things can come in as well. You know, I really do think that sometimes you have to do a stock take of who the important people are and you've got a limited amount of effort and time and keeping friendships and relationships going takes effort and time and there will be ruptures and arguments and Mm. the key ones you'll repair and that could make it stronger. But you think about the valuable 
you know, your valuable time, what are you going to invest it in? Yeah. And I think some people, you will. And just, just because you fall out with someone doesn't mean you don't go back together again. It's just one of those things that I think it's sometimes it's shocking for people that this can go at the time where you really need your friend mm. if they don't, you know, come through for you. It's really shocking. It kind of breaks a like a fundamental belief that you have about friends, doesn't it, in, in some way? Mm. Or family. Or family, yeah. And actually, this is something that's, that came up. So at the University of Warwick, one of the projects that we've done that's been um, co-produced with family carers, it was all about families and enhancing family relationships. But from the get-go with the family carers, and this is why co-production is so important, family carers were telling us, we're not just going to talk about traditional, you know, your immediate family, because they, for some people, have been let down by them. Mm -hmm. So we went with self-defined family. So that could be friends, you know, a distant cousin. You might not see the grandparent, Mm -hmm. but you have a distant cousin that helps or a neighbor or even your personal assistant, your son, your child's personal assistant. You know, we even have discussions about whether your dogs become, you know, part of that immediate (laughs) family. We were really thinking outside the box. And I think as a parent carer, you do have to think sometimes you feel let down by those really close to you I mean I feel very privileged my family have been absolutely amazing and most of my close friends have been incredible but I can see the heartbreak with other parent carers that I've seen this too so you have to start thinking out of the box and creatively who is my family now so by family that definition you're sort of saying you're nurturing safe base those connections and those relationships that and that's mutual that's not just people that you sort of take from but that you also invest in and like I've used the word pit crew in the past that sort of that small group of people who are there for the (laughs) for the immediate tire changes and the oil changes to get us back on track to you know those people that you can kind of rely on do you have any advice on the kinds of people, the characteristics of those people, whether that's who they are or or what they do, what reaction they bring out in us. Yes. And I think this came out really clearly in my research and it was really, I found this really useful to, to think about. So people would talk about the kind of other people, the positive others that were in their life. And they could be family, they could be friends, they could be local community Often, I think, in fact, I think all the people I interviewed said other parent carers became really, really important. It could be professionals. Some professionals were so key in people's lives. But the kind of common themes that they brought were um, empathy, understanding, Mm -hmm. sensitivity, and a sense of belonging. You know, when you're just with someone and you're kind of like, oh, I haven't seen you for two years, but we just pick up again and... Doesn't make any difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that sense of belonging. And I think that's often what the parent carers will bring is this sense of you found your... I know people talk about find your tribe, but you found these other people. Just thinking about an example recently with some of the family carers I'm working with, I had a meeting with them, but then I had to change it. And I said to them, could we just make it slightly earlier? Because my son's been invited to a party. He never gets invited to parties. And they just totally got it. And it was just so lovely, Mm -hmm. you know. They were accommodating, as anyone could be accommodating, but I felt that they really understood what that meant to me. What that meant. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that sense of belonging, understanding, connection. But also people talked about wanting to keep in touch with friends that brought other things too. Mm -hmm. So some friends that didn't really understand what it was like to be a parent carer, but you could still go out with them and have an absolute laugh and feel like a teenager again. So I think you can have different things from different people, can't you? I very deliberately, um, although I had those friendships, I don't have as many of, I mean, most of the friendships I have are like people like you, like online people. I, I don't, not necessarily people, because you don't, you don't meet people at the school. You don't have those interactions in the same way. But the people that I found really helpful at the beginning were those people who were like, I don't get it, but I'm happy to sit here and try and work like and hear it and not get bored of hearing it. And also those people who, so again, not people with children with disabilities, but would sit and listen and then they'd be like, that's really tough. I really hear that. That's really sad. Right, we're going to do something about it or we're going to do something else. Like, like, wouldn't let me just sit in that place of, or wouldn't, didn't sort of ramp up my anger. Do you know what I mean? Those people who let me vent and let me be real, but didn't egg me on. Mm, <laughs> so that's much. interesting. Yeah. Who didn't add fuel to my fire necessarily, because sometimes it's quite nice to speak to that person who you know will go that's outrageous how dare (laughs) they they shouldn't have and you can get yourself both you know completely but I recognize that wasn't always very good for me yes it's so interesting that you talk about venting because this came up really clearly in my in my research as well and a lot of the theory about venting is it's really bad and you end up ruminating and get stuck but so many of the parent carers I spoke to say I just need to go to another room with parent carers and vent and get it out and I Mm. think if you do get it out and then you leave it and can move on that's fine it's when you like you say you get into a bit of a downward spiral of it yeah and it you know it's quite useful to when you are speaking to someone being really clear about I want a chance to vent or I want solutions, or I want comfort. What do I want? I'll tell you what I want. (laughs) And then you can give that to me and then we can move on. Yeah, that's so true. Because sometimes you do just want to offload and you don't want solutions. And not just your friend, you need to be really clear to your husband. I'm not telling you this so you can swoop in and fix it. I'm telling you so you can tell me that I was right. (laughs) That I was right in that scenario. And that my reaction is absolutely what everyone else would have done and what happened was outrageous. That's what I'm required for this conversation. (laughs) Any other resolution can happen another time, but not now. (laughs) Nice and clear. Clear communication. Really key for relationships. (laughs) Okay. So one other thing that's come up, and you've mentioned it already, but other parents that we've spoken to on the podcast this um, season, we've talked about parent carer trauma and That might be the kind of perpetual need to fight. You know, you've mentioned that kind of, I hate that fighting talk, but it just really feels like everything is at least an uphill struggle, that there is a a constant tension, that there's no opportunity to kind of rest and expect it to happen. Or whether it's the things that we witness, you know, whether it's really nasty seizures or watching your child have CPR or, you know, and then the kind of loss and shift of your own identity and the kind of those changes. Um, and you and I have talked about there's more and more research around parent care trauma that's coming out. Is this a new thing? 
is this something that's, or is it just got a label or what's the landscape now? Where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, there's so much literature out there about trauma Mm -hmm. in general. I think it's taken a while for it to be applied to parent carers because of the kind of nature of some of the trauma which I can talk about a bit more, but I just always feel when we're talking about trauma that I just need to put some caveats in. Go for it. If that's okay, yeah. just to put them, put them out. So trauma, I mean, it's part of being human. I think, I don't know that there would be many people that get through life without something traumatic happening. And I think to put it in that context is really important. Yeah. We will, most of us will have something traumatic happens and most people will not have post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD. Yes. We're amazingly adaptable. Humans are incredible. We're amazing. I'm always amazed at human beings. That is so helpful. That bit like the kind of recognizing that the emotions you're feeling are completely normal. Also, just stopping long enough to say, whether it's parent care trauma or any other trauma, no one gets through life without this being part and part of it. So there isn't, it isn't like we've been isolated off into a little group and given you know we might have we might have opportunities to accrue it (laughs) but it's not it's not a you yeah that's I find that helpful yeah it's a human you know it's a human part of the human condition we're born we're gonna die you know (laughs) where things go wrong with our bodies people aren't nice to each other it is kind of part of being human you know, I love humans. I'm amazed by humans. I think human brain is just incredible, but things go wrong. So I think just, and and there's this thing called hedonic adaptation that whatever happens in life, generally, we tend to go back to our baseline of, you know, default happiness in the same way that people that win the lottery over time, they don't stay ecstatically happy. They come back to their kind of same level. So we're amazing, flexible beings so that's the first thing I want to say the other thing is about the use of the word trigger because it's used so Mm. much and I think overly used that we might read a sad story and we may feel sad about that and that's just part of human compassion that's not necessarily that we're triggered in the way that trigger when you're talking about trauma so a trigger with trauma is that we're kind of really taken back to the place, place. and the feelings of yeah. flashback of so I guess just distinguishing that I mean there are degrees of it but I think there can be a tendency to kind of overuse the word trigger in out in the world at the moment and not to downplay what people are experiencing and yes but just in terms of you know the trauma kind of diagnosis and thinking about the help that you might need so just an, a, a stirring of compassion and empathy and feeling upset by something that's really upsetting and being sad about something that's deeply hurting for someone you care about or in your own life is different to being in a situation which stimulates a reaction within your body that kind of makes you feel like you're in a place that you found very traumatic that was that was you know uh, that you're able you're or you're unable to be in your present state because your brain is overwhelmed by memories and sensations and feelings of another time another place that was really hard and you know feels like you've got this well-worn path of 
stuff happening within you, whether it's the, the feelings or the thoughts or the flashbacks or the memories, whatever it is. So it's different because something makes you emotional doesn't mean that it's triggered you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, in the sense of trigger when it's connected to trauma. Trauma, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I guess just, just to clarify that, that's not to minimise anyone's experiences and, and reading some things can be really depressing and anxiety-provoking and there can be help, help for that, but it's kind of a slightly different texture to it when it's trauma, if that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess the third thing I just want to mention for anyone who is listening who has been traumatised, when we talk about trauma, that can bring things up. And there's also vicarious trauma for professionals as well. And so needing some time to kind of think about that as well. But it's this, when we get taken to a different place, we're in the in the midst of the trauma. So grounding yourself in the here and now can be really helpful. And there are loads of really useful grounding exercises on YouTube. You know, people often talk about the five, four, three, two, one, you know, five things you can see four things you can hear or whatever, but just trying to really ground yourself in the here and now. And one of the ones that I quite like is thinking about three things you can see. So looking around colours and textures around your room, three things you can hear, because hearing really, you have to really focus in because sometimes it's that kind of white noise, you know, washing machine or the fridge or something, really listening, then you're here. And another one I really like is three things of your body. So move your body so maybe clench your fists a few times you can put your hand on your chest and just feel yourself breathing mm -hmm. or another one I really like is putting your feet flat on the ground and you can take your shoes and socks off if you want but really feeling your feet grounded on the floor to kind of push your heel in wiggle your toes and just remind yourself that you're here in this moment so if people are feeling triggered by trauma just trying to do those things to look after yourself and be in the here and now so what you see what you hear and your body you know moving your body or, or sensing your body whether that's like like you say you're clenching muscles or feet on the ground and really pressing that's really really helpful really yeah I, something about your voice joe just makes me want to go to sleep <laughs> I feel like I feel like if, if I well yeah like if I'm if I'm going to go for a meditation app I want you to be the voiceover for it. <laughs> I'm like, uh, that's the I'll be like Joe, just tell me something about your research. I can't quite get to sleep. <laughs> yeah, research can do that sometimes too. <laughs> so you were saying from a from yeah, a parent so trauma, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was all the preamble to as <laughs> you know, the, talking so the, about. That's not even the point trauma. yet. <laughs> no, no, we're not even there yet. Sorry. But it's just such a difficult thing talking about trauma because it can be so, so difficult for some mm. people. So a few of my colleagues and I, so often these are therapists who are also parent carers. We have peer supervision and we started talking about trauma in parent carers and we were like, it's just not being recognized. What is it? What's, you know, what's it? like how do we define it and so we set up a working group to talk about exactly this and I think between T trauma and small t trauma so the big t I think most people now in society and professionals would recognize big t trauma you know near-death experience road traffic accident or soldiers mm -hmm. fighting in a war mm -hmm. you know but I think people get that 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 can lead to um difficulties of post-traumatic stress disorder what's not so recognized are these small 
cumulative small T traumas that on their own might not be that much. I mean, they may be pretty unpleasant, but it's the, as you say, you kind of, it's this onslaught of one after the other and no time to recover. Yeah, again and again and again. That's the thing. You need to process traumatic, difficult things to store it down in your memory that you can deal with it, but there's no time for that. So we started talking about what that is. And it's really useful. One of the working group members uh, was from Respond, which is a great charity that works with people with learning disabilities and their families who've been traumatized. And they did this wonderful paper with someone from the Tizard Centre. And they, I mean, this was specifically with parents who had a a child, a son or a daughter in residential units like the Winterbourne View. Mm -hmm. And they use the definition of complex trauma, which is slightly different, complex PTSD. So complex trauma is normally, it used to be described mainly for people that have been through developmental trauma. So children that had been abused and it's like a constant that you can't escape from. Yeah. But now it's being more and more used for adults who perhaps are in a situation where there's domestic violence or kidnapping or torture, this situation that you cannot escape from and it's ongoing. And they use the word complex trauma for parent carers. And I thought that was so useful to have that kind of model to think about it because then parents may be able to go to a GP or professional and you know, and, and this isn't bashing those professionals, they're not necessarily an expert in trauma, but they might not recognize that repetitive, cumulative thing as trauma. So if a parent can carer can go along and say, this could be complex trauma, then they'll be signposted for some of the trauma support like um, EMDR, so the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing um, can still be helpful. But for complex trauma, those treatments need to be more flexible, which, again, absolutely suits parent carers. They can't Mm. always make all the appointments. How can they make their appointment if their child's in hospital for surgery? So it needs to be flexible, the treatment, and it needs to perhaps have the potential to go on for longer. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I kind of, whenever I'm talking to practitioners, and I always, it's really hard, isn't it? We started off here, but it's really hard when you're talking about how difficult it is being a parent carer, that you then always feel like you need to quantify, oh, but I do really love my child and I think they're wonderful. And, you know, you do all these caveats because you've had this, then this guilt creeps in about the fact that you're feeling like it's tricky. But the thing that you just said there that really touched a nerve is the inescapability of a situation. I've always struggled to, and I put up slides and say, look, this is what a day looks like. And this is a night. And it's not any different if I'm feeling sick. And it's not any different if it's a holiday or if it's Christmas or any of these things. This is how relentless and the amount of energy and capacity I'm required to have as a parent carer every single day. And even when my son's being looked after by somebody else, then I'm still thinking about this and thinking about that and holding to, trying to hold this and hold that. And there is an inescapability. You know, there's the lack of pause to process, the lack of switch off, to, switched off time. Escape to escape, mentally, yeah. you know, cognitively, and yeah, yeah. yeah. 
absolutely. And when I read this paper, it's called Blackman et al., and it's really good. It's published in the Tizard Learning Disability Review. We'll link it. We'll link it in the podcast notes. Yeah. I read it and I just thought, yes, this is what we've been looking for. Now, that, of course, isn't to say that every parent carer who's struggling is, has got complex PTSD, but it was a really useful way of thinking about it. And someone else that um, is involved in the group, really experienced practitioner, talks about prolonged stress disorder. I don't think it's actually in the diagnostic manual, but I thought that also really does capture it's this high level of stress, isn't it? This high level yeah. of on edge, hypervigilant. It wears you down. We're not supposed to be in that kind of state for long periods of time. Well, the biggest crash that I have whenever I'm thinking about life is coming back from holiday. If I've had a couple of days without my son. And it's to do with stepping back into the level of intensity that you realize you then become accustomed to after a couple of days. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You get your, because you just run on. It feels like, well, I used to work in A&E and I worked in the West End. I worked at UCH in London. And so when you started a night on a Friday or Saturday night, then you knew as soon as you walked out onto the care floor, it was going to be manic. Like there was going to be Eight, the nurse is going to hand over all the patients. There's going to be eight things that should have been done half an hour ago. And you're thinking, what's the thing that I need to do now that's going to happen quickly, going to have the least, imp you know, the, the least detrimental impact if it's kind of the stuff that has to be done that's not going to turn it blow up in my face if I don't do it, you know. And it's that level of like, holding oh, my breath, right, let's just go, 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 go. That's kind of how I feel feel sometimes in my head it might not even be in my body in the same way that on the in A&E I was running around and doing all these things it's like in my head I'm thinking well that hasn't been done and that hasn't been done and we need to do this and I need to do that and if that doesn't get done is that going to be detrimental to his life like is that going to impact his spine is he not going to be able to enjoy the sin like it, that I think Sarah and Lucy and I talked about it quite recently around along that it's the high stakes aspect of it as well yes and your analogy with A&E is great and there are high stakes but that's paid and you get to go home at the end yeah exactly there is no escape no <laughs> no yeah it's I step into it knowing that what it's like but I get to step out of it whereas a parent carer I don't it's really interesting what you say about the days off, because I was thinking before coming on here, I was thinking, oh, if Rachel asked me, what do I do for my well-being then? I was actually thinking that if I have a couple of days off and just relax, I feel awful. <laughs> you know, I feel really awful. I have to be doing something as well. I mean, I really love my work. I find that really being productive and doing things. I find that really helpful. Just sitting and relaxing, I don't feel very good with that. <laughs> because partly when you come back, I kind of think, oh, God, you've got to get going again. It's really hard. So I think it's, it's different things, isn't it, that, that work. And that's the issue often. And I think you've mentioned this in one of the podcasts, the image about of self-care. Yeah. What that means. I try and not use the word self-care because of the way it's kind of become twisted. But you've got to find what works for you. And it may be you know, being really driven in something or helping other people, that may be really good for your well-being or, you know, connecting with other people, all these different things, different things for different people at different times.
Born at the Right Time is a proud partner of Simple Stuff Works. Together, we champion the protection of people's bodies through engaging and enjoyable training, looking at 24-hour postural care and specifically the importance of lying support. Whether you're a novice wanting a short three-hour online course taking you through the basics, a specialist practitioner needing comprehensive training, or anything in between, we have a range of CPD-certified courses just for you. Find out more at www.bornatherighttime.com, where we give you the language, skills and confidence to protect people through excellence in 24-hour postural care. We've got to the end of our time already. Oh my gosh. How's that even happened? I know. Oh my goodness, there's so many more things I want to ask you. Um, We'll just have to have you back again. But can we do some quick rapid fire questions? Yes. Okay, so rapid fire. Joanna Griffin. (laughs) (laughs) I'm nervous now. What was your favourite subject in school? I had a few. Am I allowed a few? Oh, I can tell you were always going to be a geek. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked English. I really loved English. I love stories. I've always loved stories. I love PE and I loved art. Oh, yeah. Absolute opposite of me. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think you said maths. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) My estimation just went up. Okay. What's an ordinary moment that brings you joy? Ooh. We have a, a common near us. It's all green. Being on that, walking the dogs, I do love that. I really do yeah. love that. Yeah. yeah, being out in nature. Actually, I went for a jog this morning and it started snowing and I thought, this is ridiculous. <gasps> it was so cold. But then I actually thought, how wet? I don't think I've ever run with snow on my face. And I was just kind of appreciating the moment. I try and appreciate these little moments. Absolutely. It makes your cheeks freeze. That's what it does. I don't really run that much anymore, but I've done runs preparing for marathon, like the April marathon. You end up doing really long runs in like February. And I've done horrible, like 20 mile type long runs into like icy rain and giving myself an ice cream headache. Oh. You know, when you get that horrible. That's not this a joyful not moment. <laughs> no, that's not. That's not a joyful moment. Okay. What's the last photo you took? Oh, I think I took uh, some photos of the snow, not this morning, but when it snowed a while ago, because it just looked very beautiful. I think that was it. Oh, very nice. Okay, you're a superhero. What's your chosen superpower? Oh, yes. So this one, I would like to be able to turn back time to a certain bit to get some more time and to, yeah, just to, yeah. Redo it. Redo it over because you want to do it differently or... In some way, but it's also to fit in everything that I want to do. Okay. <laughs> What's your comfort food of choice? Oh, chocolate. Mm. Are you are you a chocolate snob? No, do no. Do you care what chocolate? No, lovely bar of dairy milk, really plain, aero, whisper. Yeah. Oh, I love a whisper. A flake. Oh, a flake. Yeah. Okay. If you were to win a TV reality show, which one would it be? I don't really like reality TV shows. This is going to sound very middle class affected, but I do love Landscape <laughs> Artist of the Year. I do love it. Is that even a thing? Landscape Artist of the Year. It's my comfort program. I watch it go, oh, that's so lovely. I wish I could paint like that. But no, I'm not really a fan. I'd never watched Love Island. 
I almost feel like I do need something like that to watch just to totally, you know, escape. Zone out. Well, Sarah's gotten into The Detectorist. Oh, I do. I love, so yeah, I love The Detectorist. That's comfort TV yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so landscape artist. Lovely. So what is happening in your life which excites you right now? I'm very excited about our conference in May. Yes. Tell us about your conference. So it's 10th of May in Kentish Town in London. And we have a day of just thinking about parents. Yay. And thinking about looking after ourselves and what we can do and some mindful movement. And then, you know, having your lunch provided for you and some tea and cakes. And then we're going to do workshops on using mindfulness, mm -hmm. using acceptance and commitment therapy. So thinking about your values, what's important in your life. And one of the workshops is run by a psychotherapist and cranial osteopath. She's going to be teaching some self-massage techniques. I can't wait. And then we're all going to come together and think about what, what do parents need? What do we need? Let's design some things, come up with some ideas. And it's not only about tips and strategies, it's about getting parents together to connect as well. So. I'm really, I'm really excited about it. Oh, I'm so excited. I've got my ticket. If you haven't got your tickets, you better be quick or else by the time, I mean, it might be gone. When it's gone, it's gone. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so, so much. We will have all the information about the conference and the book and your blog and Affinity Hub. We haven't even discussed Affinity Hub. Affinity Hub is a fantastic resource for parent care and well-being with all sorts of information, including counsellors and all sorts of stuff. Um, so find out lots of information there. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been lovely to talk to you. Yeah, it's been so good. It's been good. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Sky's Wonder podcast is a Born at the Right Time production supported by the expert studio assistants of Podshop. Thanks to our wonderful guests for sharing their stories and very precious time. And special thanks to the generosity of listeners whose donations have helped make this podcast. We would love it if you could like, follow and review the podcast wherever you listen. As part of season two, we have some great live events, including the really ropey idea of Sarah, Lucy and I being your agony aunts. Email your stories, comments and questions, either to tswupodcast at gmail.com to join in or follow us on Instagram at born at right time. We love you joining us for the ride as we hurtle along this off-piste version of parenting. It's so much better when we do it together. Whatever skies, we're under.